Well, hi, welcome to The Christian Contrast, where we talk about how following Jesus leads us to live differently than the world around us. Um, And I'm Dan here with a solo episode um, after some great episodes that I encourage you to go back and watch where we talk to our local outreach partners about justice and mercy in our community. But for this episode, I want to talk about the Respect for Marriage Act. Um, Now, I'll explain what this is because some of you will know and some of you will not know, but uh, I wanted to to start this by framing what I'm going to talk about in this episode. Um, Because for some of you, if you listen all the way through, um, some of you are going to be approaching this episode sort of like, yeah, let's get them. Um, like, yeah, we, we, we need to talk about what's going on and, and we need to, to get the people that are pushing the Respect for Marriage Act. And some of you are going to feel like, dude, this is just piling on. Like, well, why do Christians have to do this? Why do Christians have to sort of be in this culture war territory? And, and so I, I want to frame this by talking about the fact that as Christians, there's areas where we're called to be conciliatory and areas where we're called to be hostile, um, and, and let me explain what I mean by that. There, there's a sense in which we're called to be conciliatory as we follow the lead of the Lord Jesus and the way that he approached people and the way that he approached a, a culture that needed salvation. And so we have passages like Luke chapter 19, um, verse 10, where Jesus says that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And the aftermath of him reaching out to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and having this conciliatory spirit, even though Zacchaeus was a tax collector and was a traitor and was a sinner and and had done um had 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 done immoral things jesus has this conciliatory sense of like all right i'm coming to save not to condemn um or you think of the the great prophecy um that that's um quoted in matthew chapter 12 from isaiah 42 we're talking about jesus it talks about the idea that um, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out um this idea that jesus coming to people who are broken and wounded, and maybe even by their own doing, maybe even by their own sin, but he's coming to them with gentleness, and he's coming to restore, not to tear down. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize that, to say all right, that, that there's an appropriate sense as, as believers in Jesus where we say, all right, we're approaching people with a conciliatory spirit, not looking to cast out, not looking to exclude, but looking to welcome and coming with gentleness. Um, But there's a sense for us as Christians in which hostility sometimes is appropriate. And for some of you, this is going to be a hard sell, but here's what I want to say. Hostility for us as Christians is primarily directed not toward people, but certainly toward ideas. As Christians, it is totally appropriate for us to be hostile to certain destructive and false ideas. In fact, let me read for us uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, which really talks about this. It says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Waging war sounds pretty hostile. It says in verse 4, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Um, If you're listening to that, there's a lot of hostility in there. 
there is the Apostle Paul talking about, we, we are demolishing and we're smashing and we're taking captive. This is war terminology, and he's talking about it in terms of weapons. There is a hostility here, and he's saying, we have hostility toward ideas, toward arguments, towards pretensions. We are not gentle with false ideas. And so there's going to be some things that I say in here that for some of you might feel like, well, like that, this is pretty strong. Like this is coming across pretty hostile. Yes, it is hostile to destructive ideas, um, but I don't want it to be hostile to people who are currently held captive by destructive ideas. And I'll talk more about that at the end. So that's the framework. And, and now, now let me just start by talking about what the Respect for Marriage Act is, because some of you will be aware of it. Some of you will not be aware of it. Um, but this is a bill that back in the summer um, passed in the House of Representatives. It passed with bipartisan support, although it was primarily driven by Democrats, um, and then just recently passed in the Senate with some amendments. So it's going to have to go back to the House for passage there. But it passed in the Senate with 12 Republicans um, co-signing with the voting along with the Democrat senators. And so once again, had bipartisan support. And here's the basics of what this bill does, what this act does. Um, there are certain states uh, in the U.S. where same-sex marriage uh, ceremonies are performed and officiated, and there are some that it's still not recognized. And so what this act does is if a same-sex couple goes and gets married legally in a state that does affirm same-sex marriage, and then they go back to reside in a state that doesn't recognize same-sex marriage, they still have to be given all the marriage rights and all of the marriage benefits of that state, even though that state might not be the one who officiated the ceremony. That is the Respect for Marriage Act. Um, at this point, it does not have anything to do with us as churches, like with, with Life Bible Fellowship Church, being forced to officiate same-sex ceremonies. Um, some people think that's coming. I don't think it's crazy to think that that's coming, but at this point, that's not what this bill does. We wouldn't get in trouble for saying, no, I'm, I'm not gonna officiate a same-sex marriage ceremony. Um, it doesn't set up for private citizens to be sued because they speak out and say, I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. It basically puts the state on the hook where the state can't say, hey, no, we don't recognize that as marriage, so we're not going to give you the benefits. They still have to give the benefits. Um, so, so that's the basics of the situation. And now I want to talk a little bit about why this matters and why I think that this is significant right now. Um, and so the first is, is just to look at the bill itself and what it's talking about. Um, and many of us have heard the word Orwellian before. And uh, the, the word has to do with George Orwell, who wrote 1984. And primarily, it's, it's used when we talk about how a word or a phrase is now being used to mean the opposite of what it typically has meant or really should mean. And I think Orwellian is a proper word to use when we're talking about the Respect for Marriage Act. When it's called the Respect for Marriage Act, and when it absolutely is looking to demolish not only the historical understanding of what marriage is, but certainly the biblical understanding of what marriage is, there's a deep irony where, where you feel the sense of like, all right, we're, we're being gaslit right now, where we're being told that we don't respect marriage because we believe in not only traditional marriage, but what the Bible affirms as what marriage is between a man and a woman. And that is what the Bible consistently affirms. Um, there are some people that say, well, well, in the Bible, there was polygamy. So it wasn't always just between a man and a woman. Yes, that's correct. That's fair enough. There is polygamy in the Bible. There's even some major characters that practice polygamy. By the way, if you read a Bible story that involves polygamy, 
chaos is certain to follow. That is the pattern. There are things recorded in the Bible that are not affirmed by the Bible and are not affirmed by God. And polygamy is one of those, that it's present, it happens, God doesn't outright condemn it in the way that we kind of expect him to, but there's always chaos and disorder that follows it. And from the beginning, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 19, from the beginning, the idea was that a man would leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they would be one flesh. That is the biblical vision for marriage. And it's affirmed over and over again, again and again. Uh, And even in the polygamous settings, what never happened in any of those polygamous settings was that they just sort of flattened it out and said, you know what, marriage is just between two people. Um, it doesn't really matter what to any two people who are committed to, towards each other. That's what marriage is. That was never the understanding of marriage. The, there was a man who had several wives, but it was several wives. It was a man and a woman together in marriage. And the polygamous marriages weren't like everybody was married to everybody. It was each of these women were married to this man. So I'm not excusing polygamy at all. And I don't think the Bible excuses polygamy at all, but it doesn't in any way really kind of get at this problem that we're facing, which is that marriage has been redefined. And and I think that that's the core of all of this. I I think that there are times when people frame this debate, it's almost as if they're saying, hey, there's some of us that want everybody to be able to get married. And then there's some of us that that think that certain people should be excluded from marriage, that that like gay people should be excluded from marriage. That has never been what the debate is, that that's never been what the, uh, whether you want to say the more conservative side has held. What we've always held is that there is something that marriage is and that's not what marriage is. Um, it's not not a perfect analogy, but it's like if there was a dog show and somebody brought their pet turtle and was like, why don't you let my dog into the dog show? And somebody was like, it's, it's not that we're not letting your dog into the dog show. It's that that's a turtle. It's that, that that's not a dog. That's not the same thing. And what we've always said is it's not an issue of saying, hey, you don't get to get married. It would be it us saying you could get married if you're a man to a woman, or if you're a woman to a man, what we're saying is that's not marriage. Uh, a man and a man in a lifelong commitment, that's not marriage. A woman and a woman in a lifelong commitment, that's not marriage. It's it's something different. So that's always been where the debate is. And and by the way, and I, I am admittedly like pretty cynical when it comes to political things, but one of the things that's thrown into the Respect for Marriage Act is interracial marriage. Um, which to me is is just a clear way of saying like, hey, so you oppose the Respect for Marriage Act. Is that really because you don't want interracial marriage? Basically, in the country at this point, nobody, almost nobody opposes interracial marriage. Um, the issue with this really does center around same-sex marriage. Um, so the Bible consistently affirms that this, this is the stance that we hold. Now, as Bible-believing Christians, uh, we need to recognize that just because we hold something to be biblically taught doesn't mean it necessarily is something that we're looking to legislate, that, that we're looking to put into law. But it does mean that we should take notice when our culture is actively affirming something, actively affirming an idea, an argument, a pretension that is in direct conflict with what the Bible teaches. Um, And with that, you can say, well, this is not new. This has been going on for a while, and that's true. But I think one of the things that in many ways this bill signals is that politically speaking, basically the debate is over. Um, There were different measures passed in different states, including years ago in California, that defined marriage as between a man and a woman. 
And then there was a federal act, the Defense of Marriage Act, that defined marriage as between a man and a woman. That's all gone. This is revoking that we are in a new age. And, and even the fact that previously it was pretty much mostly Democrats pushing for sort of this marriage equality and Republicans uh, saying it like, no, we, we believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. That's pretty much gone now, too. So th this is now the world that we live in. And I think that that's important. And, and here's why that's important. When we think about the world that we're living in, and when we think about the world that our kids are now being grown up in, or or the people in our church that we're discipling are, are a part of, we need to recognize that the natural flow of what people will think is not, well, marriage is clearly between a man and a woman, and there's people pushing a, a, an unhealthy agenda here. Just going with the flow, what people are going to think is the right position, the moral position, the majority position right now is that any two people who love each other, that's what marriage is. Now, you know, 50, 60 years ago, and, and I'll get into this, 50, 60 years ago, things were messed up, all kinds of things. Human history has had no perfect culture or perfect golden age of culture. But 50, 60 years ago, at least on this subject, if somebody was just sort of going with the cultural flow, maybe not even super aware of the Bible or super aware of the gospel, but they were just going with the cultural flow. Um, they probably would have thought, well, well, yeah, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what marriage is. They probably also, by the way, would have thought when you get married, you're supposed to stay married. You're supposed to stay committed to your, to your husband or to your wife. Um, and they also would have thought, for the most part, that homosexuality was something that was either sinful or deviant or, or at least sort of an undesirable activity to be had. And so here's my point in saying that on this specific issue, 50, 60 years ago, if somebody was just sort of going with the cultural flow, they would have had something that approximated a biblical worldview on this subject. Um, now we might say, well, well, they didn't necessarily get there the right way, but we'd say, all right, they, they would have, for the most part, a biblical worldview on marriage in many different ways. Um, and there are some benefits to that. If somebody is going into marriage and they're saying, all right, I, I'm a man committing myself to a woman, that's a good thing. If they're going into marriage saying, hey, this is death to us part, not just until one of us gets bored, that's a good thing. If they're going into it saying, hey, the, there is something about marriage that uniquely is, is in order when it's a man and a woman. God has created us male and female in his image and we're complementary and we're meant to go together. That would have been a good thing also. So they would have had some of the common grace benefits of living out a Christian worldview even by going with the flow. Um, in a similar way to where right now, if somebody was just going with the cultural flow, not necessarily thinking it through, not necessarily even reading the Bible, but just going with the cultural flow, they would be absolutely mortified by any racism that they encountered. That, that is the air that we breathe right now, and thank God for that, because that has not always been the case in the United States. It has not been the case, and it's still not the case in many nations today. But if somebody is sort of like, I'm not really thinking it through, I'm just going with the flow of the culture, they would be mortified by racism, and they would uphold the idea that all people are equal, either sort of whether they'd say before God, but, but that they're all equal to one another, regardless of race. That is very good. It is good that in our culture right now, if you just go with the flow, you get the common grace uh, idea of that, even if you haven't read it in the Bible, which you would read it in the Bible. Um, but here's what's not true right now. What's not true right now is that if somebody goes with the flow, they're going to end up benefiting from that common grace idea of marriage. They're going to end up in a very different place. And this just means that all the more, those of us who are parents, those of us who are leaders in the church, those of us who are part of the community, 
we, we can't sort of just be in the background doing our thing. We have to be much more overt in how we talk about this. We can't just expect that if our kids are growing up in our house, they're going to naturally gravitate towards the biblical view of marriage. We need to teach it overtly. We need to teach it overtly in our churches, in our youth groups, in our Sunday school classes. We need to talk about it in the conversations. And, and I think that there's been a season of time where, where there is sort of this evangelical guilt. Maybe some of it was justified. I think a lot of it was probably not justified, but maybe some of it was justified that there's this guilt of feeling like, hey, we, we've mistreated and mishandled the way that we talk um, about homosexuality and the way that we talk about gay people. And so we, we need to be very sort of apologetic, like, hey, we've messed up and, and we're looking to make up for that now. Um, whether or not that was appropriate at any time is, is a debate worth having. Um, right now, I don't think that that is a tenable position that we can have, that we can say, hey, the main thing that we need to do right now is just be like super, super gentle on how we talk about this and sort of apologetic. And I'm sorry, this is really offensive. And, and, and I know it's hard, but we still are, are good people. And here's what we hold to. Um, we need to be much more comfortable with this stance. This is the stance that God has revealed to us. We don't need to apologize about it. We don't need to act like somebody else has the moral superiority over God and what he's revealed. God is all wise in what he's revealed here. So we need to be unapologetic with our kids, unapologetic with our youth groups, unapologetic in the way that we talk about this. We need to be hostile toward the ideas that are penetrating our culture and are now becoming the norm that we have to be hostile to the norm that we need to overtly warn against because otherwise we're going to be taken captive by those ideas. Um, now, this doesn't mean, I'll talk about this more later, this doesn't mean that we have hostility toward every person that holds those views. It means that we're hostile toward the idea and we're not ashamed in our public and formal teaching to teach in a way that unapologetically rebukes these ideas. Um, this is important in many ways. And, and just, just to give a quick illustration of how I think that we've, uh, we've been a bit too conciliatory toward ideas, not towards people, but toward ideas. Um, lately, one of the things that's become a subject nationwide is how sex is being taught in schools. Um, and, and so there's been lots of conversations about sort of teachers and some people are saying, all right, there, there's teachers that are really trying to teach students, you know, transgenderism and homosexuality and, and make this flat plane of where everything's equal. Um, and one of the responses to this, one of the, I think, kind of conservative and maybe sometimes even Christian responses to this has been to say, you know what, teachers just need to never talk about sex in any, like unless they're teaching sort of the facts of it, they shouldn't talk about their sexuality at all. And one of the odd places that that lands us is that, that usually that comes up because we're like, all right, there was some gay teacher who was talking, some gay man who was talking about his husband and suddenly parents were mortified and they were like, no, he just shouldn't be talking, like no teacher should be talking about their private life at all. I, I'm just going to say, when I was growing up and when I was going to school, teachers, female teachers would occasionally mention their husband, male teachers would occasionally mention their wife. Nobody ever said, hey, they, they shouldn't be talking about their personal life. We, we need to be honest about what's going on in this situation. The problem in this situation is not that we're saying, hey, no teacher should talk about their home life and who they're married to. Reason that there's some kind of backlash against this is because we're saying we don't want homosexuality normalized for our kids. We don't want them growing up in an environment where they're just like, ah, both are sort of the same. 
We're saying, no, we don't think that both are the same. We understand some people in our culture do. We don't. In scripture, that's not what we're taught. We don't want to normalize that in the same way that we might watch a TV show and it might be like, hey, here's a straight couple and hey, here's a gay couple and it's no big deal. We're like, no, it is a big deal. And it's not that we don't have a problem with seeing the straight couple kissing. We, we feel like that's appropriate. But when we see the gay cu couple kissing, we're like, no, we don't think that that's appropriate. I think there's been this desire in our gentleness to be like, uh, yeah, we, we just don't want any of it. I think that that's dishonest. I think that we need to be real. I don't have any problem with my kids' teachers talking about if it's a woman, her husband at home and what you know, what's going on in their lives. If it's a male teacher, his wife at home and what's going on in their lives. I'm like, that's very normal. I, I don't think that there's any need to do anything about that. Um, if one of my kids' teachers is gay, I don't want him talking about his husband at home. I don't want her talking about her wife at home. I don't want that normalized. Now, I'm not advocating for like, I, I'm crystal clear on legislatively what needs to happen. I'm just saying as Christians, I think it's okay for us to be honest about this and just to say, yeah, we're, we're not going to sort of go to this neutral territory of just, hey, nobody should be talking about their home life at all. We're saying there is a difference here and we're holding to that difference. And we're not always sure of exactly how that's supposed to work itself out legislatively, but we are saying we don't think that these are the same. We understand that our culture has equated these now. We don't think that they're the same. We're not going to think that they're the same. We're going to hold to scripture. We're going to be treated as weirdos. Sometimes we're going to be called names. Sometimes we're going to be called bigots. We, we accept that. We understand that that's part of the reality of living as strangers in this context. But man, if we're living as strangers in this context, and this is part of what I want to say, um, we, we need to stop acting like if we just do things a little bit differently and a little bit more gently, we're suddenly going to gain the approval of the world. We are not. That is not what's going to happen in our cultural setting on this subject right now. So we just need to em embrace, hey, we're strangers right now. We're pilgrims right now. We are going to embrace what God said, and we're going to recognize that we're weird. We're going to tell our kids like, hey, just so you know, what we're teaching you, what we're teaching you in the Bible right now, this is very different than the normal thing that you are going to be taught at school, that many of your friends are going to think, that you're going to see on the news or that you're going to see on TV. Our culture right now is hostile on this issue, and we are hostile to the ideas that they are putting forth. And I think that one of the calls that we have as believers right now in our culture is to up the ante of the idea that we are unapologetically hostile toward certain ideas. Um, once again, I feel like this has happened with abortion in different ways, where there's a sense of us as Christians, uh, those of us who are pro-life being sort of apologetic, like, hey, we're, we're pro-life, but we're still good people. Um, we don't need to apologize for the fact that we think that unborn babies should not be murdered. We can be gentle with people who have been through abortions and are dealing with guilt or anger at, at people saying that abortion is wrong, but we can still continue to be hostile toward the idea that it's somehow moral to kill unborn babies. In the same way, we need to be hostile toward the idea that there is this flattening of any expression of sexuality. God has made us with a purpose. God has made us with a good purpose. And when we pervert that, everybody gets hurt in that. Now, our hostility toward these ideas does not mean we are hostile to every person we encounter who holds these ideas. In fact, I think we see a model with Jesus in many ways where he was not in his behavior hostile toward even prostitutes, but he was hostile to people who were perpetuating the false ideas that were leading people into sin and into oppression. So I think that sometimes we might be talking to a person and largely, it's, it's not that they're not responsible, but we could say largely they hold this position because they're a victim of the time in which they live and it's so the air they breathe that of course they believe this. And there can be a gentleness in talking to somebody about it. 
or to talking and having a conversation with somebody who is active in the LGBTQ community and is feeling like I, I, I feel very vulnerable right now and like people are out to get me. We can be very gentle in the way that we interact with people and we can use God-led, Holy Spirit-led discernment in how we interact with people. But man, brothers and sisters, we gotta be hostile towards these ideas. Fellow pastors, anybody listening to this, we need to be hostile toward these ideas and we need to be unapologetic about it. And we need to stop acting like, well, if we're just polite enough, people are gonna start to come around. Our public voice needs to be absolutely clear on this. And in individual conversations, we don't waver, but we might approach with more gentleness and more conciliation because we're interacting with the person, not just with the idea. When we're interacting with the ideas, we need to take every thought captive. We need to demolish arguments that are being made, and we need to be bold in how we do it. Um, once again, with the Respect for Marriage Act, this doesn't change everything, but I think it changes something significant enough that it's worth us taking notice and worth us saying there's a calling on us to respond to this with greater activity in making sure that we are passing along what Scripture has said in a culture that's hostile towards it in many ways, but in particular on this issue. Um, I hope that this was helpful. Um, I certainly welcome feedback and comments and questions. You can find all the episodes of, um, of The Christian Contrast on our YouTube channel for Life Bible Fellowship Church and also just on our webpage, uh, lbf.church. Um, I do welcome comments and feedback. You might have some pushback on this or you might have a question or you might have a thought that you want to give. Please do leave those comments. and I'll be happy to interact with those. We do The Christian Contrast every two weeks, so I'm going to be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen, and I look forward to talking to you again in two weeks.